And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf, and joining me in the studio today, the Reverend Mark Diedrich. Good to be here, Dan. And Dr. Hans Vogt. Thanks for having me, Dan. Well, gentlemen, it's good to have you here in the studio. Hans, it's been a while since we've had you here. Forgive us for not inviting you earlier, but it's always a pleasure to have you, and uh, Mark as well. You know, uh, in the news lately, uh, we've been hearing a lot about Libya um, and the various actions that are taking place there in that part of the world. Today we want to talk about the U.N. a little bit. I believe it was the U.N. Security Council that uh, imposed this no-fly zone over Libya, and it kind of makes you step back on many fronts and say, okay, I want to understand this U.N. a little bit and its role as it affects the United States or the other way around, whatever. Um, Who can get us started today? We want to look a little bit at the U.N. and I suppose its ramifications uh, in uh, world governments. Well, I think one of the things, and Hans will be able to do this much better, but uh, I'll just get us started. Uh, the UN was kind of an outgrowth after World War II, because between World War I and World War II, we had what was called the League of Nations. And the League of Nations was to be uh, the organization that would end all wars. And, of course, sure enough, it didn't work, and uh, we were embroiled in a Second World War. And then uh, out of that, in, what is it, 1945, October, actually, I think is they talked about it in April, and then in October, I think they actually mm-hmm. uh, started what was uh, to be the United Nations, which was going to be that organization that would get together and really would stop all wars and uh, <laughs> make things very peaceful for everybody. That's right. Um, you know, in the late 19th century, you had some movements toward... Um, trying to create a body of international law. You had the uh, Geneva Conventions, which initially it dealt with establishing the Red Cross and mm-hmm. care of uh, prisoners and, and uh, people wounded in battle. Uh, and then you had the Hague Conventions, um, which were the initial attempts to establish rules for war. Uh, but really, after World War I, you have, with the peace treaty that ended the war, the Treaty of Versailles, you have the establishment of the League of Nations, And President Woodrow Wilson, who was the American president at the time, really believed and hoped that the League would be a place not only to resolve differences without having to go to war and kill 20 million people again, Mm. but also that it would be a forum for the rest of the world to finally embrace the American model of uh, democracy and uh, economic uh, freedom. And, uh, of course, that never really happened either. So what was the time then that the U.N. originated? What uh, what year? Well, the League of Nations is from 1919 to 1946, actually. It goes out okay. of business. All right. Um, and then in World War II, you have uh, an agreement. Actually, the... Uh, the big three, Stalin and, and Churchill and Roosevelt, agreed at the Tehran Conference in 1943 that they would create a new organization to replace the League of Nations. Mm-hmm. And the name United Nations was simply the name of the wartime alliance. Okay. So um, its intents, uh, at least on the surface, are are rather noble. Oh, yeah. He, I mean, obviously, uh, who wants war? And, yeah. And uh, there's certainly the aspect of preventing war, but... When you start looking at its charter, it's far more comprehensive than that. It's an encouragement of a whole lot of other things. And so, in one sense, it's almost kind of uh, 
Part of the thought with uh, League of Nations and a lot of these things that, that come about are, are really utopian endeavors. And uh, you start looking at an utopian endeavors and you find out that, you know, I mean, you know, they're as old as history. You go back to the time of the Reformation, mm-hmm. you have Sir Thomas More writing Utopia, <laughs> mm-hmm. the, the book U- Utopia. And, but the realities of Utopia and what really happens and the fiction of u- Utopia are, are two different things. If you look at, at uh, for example, if you read uh, Sir Thomas More's Utopia, there's great toleration in there. But if you look at Sir Thomas More's life, there was very little toleration. In fact, <laughs> there's, there's a strong argument to be made that he was the guy that was a big heresy hunter that had William Tyndall burned at the stake. Hmm. So uh, the UN uh, has this uh, kind of high and lofty goal. Um, any more information on the development, background of the UN? Uh, I'm looking at Hans here. I know you can't see that over the air. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it really grows out of... Um, uh, a document known as the Atlantic Charter. Hmm. Uh, in August of 1941, Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt met uh, aboard a destroyer off the coast of Newfoundland. Uh, top secret meeting, actually so top secret, they hired a stunt double to play FDR uh, aboard the presidential yacht off oh the coast of Massachusetts, while the real FDR was uh, off uh, the coast oh, of Canada. That's interesting. Uh, but that Atlantic Charter laid out the goals of the Allies, Uh, in World War II, even though the U.S. at that point was not officially at war. And, uh, you know, FDR summarized them up as the four freedoms uh, afterwards, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of religion, freedom from want, meaning economic poverty, and freedom from fear, meaning political oppression or uh, tyranny. But the last point of the Atlantic Charter is really where you see the impetus for the U.N. It says... They, meaning Roosevelt and Churchill, believe that all of the nations of the world, for realistic as well as spiritual reasons, must come to the abandonment of the use of force. Hmm. They believe, pending the establishment of a wider and permanent system of general security, that the disarmament of such nations is essential. Okay. Well, you guys uh, agree with that statement? Well, you know, it sounds I'll just nice. Lay it right out here. <laughs> you know, it sounds nice, but it flies in the face of the Bible. Okay, you know, and the scriptures are, are clear that uh, until Jesus comes again, there are going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. There's going to right. be all manner of things. Mm-hmm. It's the human nature, and and one of the I think the the problems uh, that you have is you have uh, the humanist uh, idea of the perfectibility of human beings. And that's a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, they tend to deny the original sin and the, the fact that, that people are born in sin. And yeah. it really can't get their minds around uh, what that, that is and what that all implies. It, it, the feeling I get is that, um, of course, we want a lack of war. We hate war. We don't right. want war. Um, we would love to see an abandonment of the use of force, uh, as this document says, but it's naive in in light of a, a man's nature, as the scriptures would describe it. And, and here's something else to, to consider because of the evil of, of human beings, is you can have a lack of war and have killing 
that runs rampant. I mean, after all, you just look at the Vietnam conflict. Right. I guess it wasn't a, really a war. It was a kinetic military action. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. We're going to get to that those, later. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, uh, the, the, this whole police action. You know, um, yeah, after we pulled out, after South Vietnam collapsed, then the killing really started. And probably yeah. a million and a half were killed, probably many more were killed after the war. Mm-hmm. Than, than actually in the conflict itself. Well, hold that thought a minute. I see we're up against the break. Today you're listening to A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. We're talking about the U.N. and its ramifications. And what God is talking about that is our recent action in Libya. Interesting discussion today. Lots of history. Stay with us. We'll be right back. In June of 1944 I waited in the blood of Omaha's shores Twenty-one and scared to death My heart pounding in my chest I almost made the first seawall my friends turned and saw me fall I still smell the smoke, I can taste the mud As I lay there dying from a loss of blood Say a prayer for peace For every fallen son We'll be right back with our program in just a minute. Now a reminder that your gifts to this ministry enable us to bring you thoughtful, Christ-centered programming 24 hours a day. Would you prayerfully consider helping us with a tax-deductible gift this month? Redeemer Broadcasting is a 501c3 not-for-profit broadcast ministry. We're entirely listener-supported and have no advertisements. If you would like to help support us this month, and perhaps in the future, our mailing address is Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. Once again, Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. Stay with us now for the second half of our program. And welcome back. You're tuned to A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dane Elmendorf. Join me in the studio today, the Reverend Mark Diedrich and Dr. Hans Vogt. Today we're talking about the UN. We've covered a little bit about how it came about, what some of its original intents were. But um, then we realized that 
because of the nature of man being what it is, uh, some of these goals are rather naive and uh, really don't um, go along with what the scriptures would say. Now, um, let's go back to the UN just a little bit, and uh, what has it actually accomplished is is one of the questions I have, and also, how much are we spending on this UN as the United States? Well, there's a, a number of different things, of course, that the United Nations does. Um, the two basic organizations are the General Assembly, which is the main deliberative body, all but one sovereign state, um, and the one sovereign state is the Vatican City, but all other mm. 192 states are members, and uh, they meet yearly, uh, and it requires a two-thirds majority to pass a resolution, but those resolutions are not binding. So it's a forum for debate and discussion, but it really, at the end of the day, doesn't accomplish a whole lot. Okay. Uh, the Security Council, of course, is where you have binding resolutions, and it's the Security Council which is charged with trying to maintain peace. And on the Security Council, you have five permanent members, the United States, Great Britain, France, Russia, and China. And then you have 10 other members who are elected for two-year terms and who represent various regions of the globe. So there will always be a country from Latin America on the Security Council. There will always be one from Africa and so forth. Mm. Uh, You need, again... um, a majority to pass a Security Council resolution, but the five permanent members have veto power. Any okay. one of the five can, by themselves, block a Security Council resolution. Hmm. And then you have the other things. You have uh, the International Court of Justice, which is actually located in The Hague in the Netherlands, not New York City. Um, you have the agencies like the World Health Organization, UNICEF, the International Atomic Energy Agency, um, all those kinds hmm. of agencies, too, that are part of the U.N. umbrella. Hmm, okay. Um, how about the spending? Well, the U.S. is the spend? biggest contributor. <laughs> um, the, it, it's funded by voluntary contributions, and they're assessed based on each nation's ability to pay. Well, we have a lot of ability to pay these days, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't resist that. <laughs> so we provide about 22% of the funding. Um, the next biggest contributor is Japan. Okay. Uh, at about 12.5%, then Germany, then Britain, then France. Well, that's a huge difference there. Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, and China, what does China contribute to? Have it? Uh, China and contributes about the same as Canada and Spain, which is mm-hmm. a little over 3%. Didn't they mm-hmm. just uh, surpass us in manufacturing capability this past week? <laughs> I think I heard something like that. It, the irony I always thought of, of this, you know, you've got the Security Council, and at the time when it was founded, it, of course, it was the old Soviet Union. Uh, again, one of the greatest oppressors in the world, along with the Republic of China. Again, right. one of the greatest oppressors in the world. And here they are on the Security Council. And then, then you have the uh, Commission on Human Rights, which was replaced by the Council of Human Rights in 2006. But in 2003, you had a Commission on Human Rights that was chaired by Libya. Oh, my. You know, it is like, yeah. uh, oh, they're chairing the Commission on <laughs> and that, that gets me back to this original question. One of the original ones is, what does it actually accomplish? Yeah. You know, it may it may send a kind of a nice, touchy-feely message that you all want to talk together, but in terms of what is it really accomplishing, I'm not coming away with good feelings here. Yeah. All right. It, um, it's been most effective in situations where, first of all, all the great powers have to agree. 
because if they don't, they can veto it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been most effective in places where it's so obvious and, and, and so overwhelming. Um, but the UN has also even avoided going into a lot of situations. Hmm. Um, yeah. So, it, it, you know, it's been, um, I suppose you could say it's better than nothing in the sense mm-hmm. of having a, a forum to discuss things. Okay. But has it has it stopped wars? Has mm-hmm. it prevented bloodshed and ethnic cleansing and all those horrible no, things? Clearly not. It has yeah. not helped in that. Now, um, getting back to Libya... Um, I see we're getting close on time already on this broadcast today, but we still have a little bit of time left. Um, Libya. Here's Gaddafi over there. He's, he's been a problem in the past, and probably many leaders in the free world would like to see him taken out of power. However, what is our role in all of these things? Um, do we just uh, willy-nilly send Tomahawk cruise missiles at any place where there's a rebellion in order to try to help the rebelling party? How does this work? Well, here's where I think we've gotten away from the intent of the founders in the Constitution mm-hmm. when it comes to the war-making power. Um, our, our whole constitutional system is based on separation of powers and checks and balances. Yes. And while the president is given the role of commander-in-chief uh, and being in charge of the military... The power to declare war, to make the decision on when the U.S. military is going to be sent into a foreign country, um, rests with Congress alone. So that is true. It rests with Congress. Yes. Now, the last time Congress declared war was in World War II. Yeah. Um, Every president since World War II has sent troops into combat. Yeah. Um, None of them have asked for a declaration of war. Um, some have sought congressional resolutions authorizing the use of force, but always giving them a very free reign over those decisions. You know, besides the constitutional part, and that's extremely key here, because you're talking about legalities and possible illegalities, it seems prudent to want to get uh, the people of these United States, who are supposed to be united, uh, behind an effort. And if if indeed we're going to have our sons and daughters shed their blood, because that's what happens in war, mm-hmm. then we had better get behind a war or else have nothing to do with it. i got to be honest with you guys. I have a hard time sending our loved ones over in harm's way if this war has not been declared by Congress. And if it's not a just war. You know, some time ago we mm-hmm. had talked about what constitutes a just war. Well, I think there's a couple issues here, and I'm going to take maybe a little bit different stance here in, in terms of, okay, we're firing cruise missiles into their tomahawks. We're, you know, that's yeah. one of the things, although what I've heard, though, is the way we do it anymore, we have to have foot soldiers in there. I know a lot of times uh, they spotters. need Spotters. Yeah, they, they need to be spotters, right. and they need to be painting lasers on a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. And and so that that makes you feel uncomfortable. I remember when Reagan went and hit Libya the first time. It clearly wasn't that he was declaring war on them, but he knew that they had terror cells there, and he just mm-hmm. nailed the terror cells and almost got Gaddafi at that time, too, because mm-hmm. Gaddafi was hanging around with the terrorists pretty closely. Um so, yeah, but what what is our mission? And that, of course, I can agree with you there. Yeah. What is our mission? And if we want Gaddafi out, who's going to take over? There's a worry. 
And that is yeah. a big concern right now. Is it going to be Al Qaeda? Yeah. You know, are we are we going to trade one bad apple for one that's even more rotten than the, mm-hmm. the first one? And that's that's a big question we have to ask. Mm-hmm. So uh, here's the U.S. military, and I love our military. I hope you know that. Oh, uh, yeah. And yet, it, it just is responding to directives from the administration. Uh, I guess that's how it works. Um, mm-hmm. Firing a massive barrage of cruise missiles at these targets in Libya in support of the UN-authorized no-fly zone. And I'm just a little citizen here, and I'm starting to think, okay, let's see now. Uh, did our president go to Congress? I, I heard the rumor that maybe he talked to just a handful of Congress people, and I think, what is going on? How is this supposed to be done? Can someone help me here? Well, it is supposed to be, um, you know, a consultation with Congress. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in, in the past, presidents, even if they haven't gotten a formal declaration of war, have at least gone to Congress, made the case, laid out the reasons why we might need to use force and what our objectives are, and then gotten a resolution mm-hmm. authorizing that. Um, uh, President um, Bush did that before going into uh, mm-hmm. Iraq and Afghanistan, for example. Here we have seemingly a very last minute decision um, with. Leaders of Congress informed, not consulted, informed okay. that we're going to do that. Um, I, I really question the legality and the constitutionality of that. And, yeah. and, and here's the real problem. It was in response to the U.N.'s request. And, yeah. and when you have a U.N. that that puts a Libya on the... Yeah. As, as, a, as the chair of the Commission on Human Rights, you've got to say... What kind of moral stance does the U.N. have to be able to decide what's what's going to be just in this case? And we are not represented in the United Nations the way we are represented in Congress. We don't vote for the members of the U.N. They do not represent us. Um, They Mm -hmm. represent a whole lot of different countries. And this is a fundamental issue of of sovereignty. You know, um, the original League of Nations, you might know the United States never joined the League never ratified the treaty. And Senator Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts, who led the opposition, warned that we were being asked to surrender sovereignty. In fact, this is what he Mm. said in 1919. He said, uh, Now we are asked in the making of peace to sacrifice our sovereignty in important respects, to involve ourselves almost without limit in the affairs of other nations. We are asked to incur liabilities to an unlimited extent and furnish assets at the same time, which no man can measure. I think it is not only our right, but our duty to determine how far we shall go. That's a rather prophetic statement that that Mr. Lodge made there. Well, um, was there a clear threat to the security of the United States from Libya? (laughs) Because <laughs> that seems like it's this, one of the criterions, right? Back when Reagan hit it, yeah. <laughs> okay. But, All right. but now, yeah. uh, after Reagan hit the, hit the compound with the F-111s, yeah. um, it was, uh, I mean, we didn't hear anything from Omar Gaddafi. And in fact, uh. he made it clear that he was no longer going to seek nuclear weapons. And, yeah. and he, he really quieted down. Well, there must be there must be something else behind the scenes that I'm not seeing. I, Hans, you mentioned this. 
who knows maybe there's there's a reason we've yet to uncover as to why why the urgency here because you know if 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 the grounds for bombing people are to stop oppression then why only libya and not other countries where there is documented oppression um certainly mm-hmm. north korea there's horrendous oppression mm-hmm. you know if you can justify bombing libya why not north korea there's mm-hmm. got to be something more here and maybe we'll find out in uh weeks to come I see we're getting close on time. How about some wrap-up thoughts here? Um, maybe, Hans, you can talk to the U.N. and, and s- thoughts that you have and, and mark some theological thoughts. Well, I think the United Nations has a role to play in the sense of being a forum for discussion. Okay. Um, but I don't think the United States should be in a position of allowing the U.N. to dictate our policy. Yeah, uh, and um, if I could just quote a little bit more of, of Senator Lodge because I think this is so true, he said, "I am thinking of what is best for the world. For if the United States fails, the best hopes of mankind fail with it. The United States is the world's best hope. But if you fetter her in the interests and quarrels mm-hmm. of other nations, if you tangle her in the intrigues of Europe, you will destroy her power for good and endanger her very existence." Mm. Well put. Yeah, I think uh, the one thing that Henry Cabot Lodge hit, he hit the term sovereignty. And that's the the thing. One of the things that I think is in the back of the mind with a lot of people is that the United Nations becomes sovereign over all. This is what was so disturbing about listening to the United Nations instead of going to Congress. Well, what is that? To be sovereign over all is to replace God. We see it back in Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel, Mm -hmm. where it lets us all get together and we'll make this world and we'll make a name for ourselves. And and too often that's what I see going on with the United Nations. Mm -hmm. God is, there's no room for God. And uh, what they want is sovereignty over all. And what happens with that is once somebody has sovereignty overall, these people that still say there is a God and that still say there's someone over them, uh, they are no longer tolerated, mm, either in true. concentration camps or they're just outrightly killed. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much. I see we're close on time now. Clearly, God wants a humble people and a people who looks to him for his kind and loving mercies. Um, if you have comments today about this broadcast, we would encourage you to send us an email. Our address is ministry at redeemerbroadcasting.org. Today, joining me in the studio has been the Reverend Mark Diedrich and Dr. Hans Vogt. We look forward to hearing from you, and if you have questions that you would like this team of fellows to consider on future broadcasts, please contact us. For Redeemer Broadcasting, I'm Dan Ellendorf. May our Lord richly bless you today with His grace and His peace as you serve Him.